Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm here with an old friend of mine who I've known for over 12 years, um, David Ringwood, who's Vice President at Management Research Group, MRG. And he's um, an expert in psychometrics and people and leaders. And I've often sought his wisdom and his advice about the psychometrics that I use. I use one of theirs called the IDI, the Individual Directions Infantry. And David's been uh, a great friend and great advisor uh, on that. So David, lovely to have you on, on, the, Pleasure. on the series. Um, firstly, I'm really interested in uh, when, when you've seen a team go from good to great. Yeah. Uh, which team was it and, and what happened that made it a good team? Because I'm interested in good teams as well as good leaders. Which one would you pick? You know, I, I, I've had to think about this because I've worked in different industries, financial services, professional services, and so on. Um, and I think it's been good to observe different leaders in different contexts. Yeah. Uh, I have to say the team that I've seen go from uh, good to great is the team I have now right. uh, with Management Research Group. Uh, okay. There's less than 20 people in the organization. It's a global business. Uh, we work very hard. We're stretched quite thin. And if ever there's a time when camaraderie and togetherness and collaboration is necessary, uh, this is probably the context in which it, it makes the most difference from what I've seen so far. Yeah. And so when, when, you, when you've seen teams as well as, as your own in other organizations, perhaps what have you seen that makes a toxic team? Okay. What, what, what actually, just pick a couple of qualities you notice that really will take a team apart. There's the usual currencies, uh, which is uh, there's a fundamental lack of trust. Yeah, trust. Um, if that's not working there, it makes very little room for many of the other currencies that would be important. Mm. Um, I've seen teams that don't work well or that create a toxic environment where their values are quite different. Mm. Now, when it comes to behavior, I like behavioral variety. Yeah. It's great to have someone driving the team. It's great to have someone looking after the detail. It's great to have someone you know, playing the devil's advocate. I think that kind of variety is a great mix. Yeah. I think when it comes to values, I think consistency, yeah. uh, the lowest common denominator there can really have an adverse and a disproportionate effect on a team. Mm, that's very good. And I think linked with trust, I was reading about the um, fearless organization mm. and psychological safety, which I, I think adds it's ba- the basis of trust. Indeed. And we've seen organizations where it doesn't exist. Mm. Okay, and then what about people who've inspired you during your career? Who, who would you pick and tell a story about someone who inspired you as leader? What were their qualities? I've had the benefit of many people that could fall into that category. The one I would um, point out that has had the greatest impact in every sense of the term was a gentleman by the name of Theo Stegers. Theo Stegers. Uh, he was the person who was my first boss when I began to work in recruitment yeah. many, many years ago. And there was a few things about him I really liked. Um, I shared his ambition. Uh, he was ferocious in his intent. Uh, he was relentless in his pursuit 
uh, of, of uh, further levels of success. He just never lowered the bar. But I learned by observation. Mm. Um, I went with him to see clients. I heard him on the phone. Uh, I saw him and heard him and I listened to him and he gave me feedback mm -hmm. in a way that was truthful and compassionate and sensitive but no nonsense. Yeah. He did not let me off the hook. He forced me to confront my own inabilities, uh, my own limitations. And in doing so, he moved me on in terms of my confidence in a way no one else has ever done. Mm. Uh, to a point where, and nobody actually knows this, um, about three years ago, I took the time to go back and visit Theo. Oh, really? Uh, he didn't expect me. I walked in the door in his current business because I wanted to shake the man's hand and thank him. Yeah. And I explained to him the difference he had made. Wow. I don't normally do things like that. He must have been quite taken by that. He was. It, 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 he was surprised. He didn't recognize me first because it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I think I've aged worse than he has. Um, but I think he was very grateful. Uh, and it was nice because I came to him with my gratitude and I generated a certain amount of gratitude in him. You know, yeah. And it was good to be able to acknowledge people. And gratitude is important. People don't use it enough, do they? I, I'd go one step further. I think the, the inclination to take things for granted. Mm. Um, and then it becomes an expectation. Uh, and then people assume they're going to get it. Yeah. Uh, I think gratitude is a great thing towards other people, but also sometimes we forget what we should be grateful for. Yeah. So I think as a, as a general um, area to be more cognizant of, I think it is important. Yeah, I, I love using a gratitude journal. I write it yep. each morning and mm -hmm. each evening. Uh, the five minute journal.com was yep. the one I, I use. But, you know, we know that the art of, of gratitude is, is a great psychological mm -hmm. boost and, mm -hmm. and focuses our minds. So he was a good person to learn from. And as we talk about learning, we all mm -hmm. make a, a huge number of mistakes over yep. time. Um, I, I seem to keep making them, but I just make them in a different way. Um, but when you look back on your own life, what, what was, uh, you know, an area where you had quite a, a shift from a style of, of leadership which didn't really work well, mm. perhaps old school style, to, to one that was more enlightened? What, what was your journey? I, I would describe the learning uh, around this uh, as a movement from being very command and control, very hierarchical, using authority and power, which is what I thought leadership was about. And then as, I, as I look back, it was a remarkably naive view of, mm -hmm. of leadership. It was almost a stereotype I relied on, which was um, an unintelligent stereotype. Uh, as you live and learn, as you make mistakes, um, as you talk to people, as you listen to people, as you get feedback from people, you begin to appreciate that there are different ways to lead. Mm. Uh, in fact, the very core philosophy of Management Research Group, which I've had the privilege of being with for nearly 15 years now, wow. is that there is no right or wrong way to lead. What could be highly effective in one con context could be catastrophic somewhere else. Yeah. So we can make no assumptions. And part of what I've learned is the ability to look around the room, uh, to drive greater awareness and to calibrate the way that you lead and motivate and manage and collaborate and communicate with people and to support them on their terms, not my terms. Yeah. Now that's unlearning, not development, yes. and that took me a long time to do. Yeah. And with the benefit uh, of, of uh, very wise counsel for many people. Yeah, and you raise a really good point. There's this business about unlearning, and I think 
I'm one of life, life's lifelong learners. And as I, as I move on and try and learn some new things, I have to unlearn some stuff. Yeah. And that's quite hard, isn't it? Because we, mm. we, we, we have some views that we hold very tightly. Yeah. We need to actually let them go before we can move on and learn what's mm. new. We need to be cognizant of them to begin with. Yeah. Often this is the, one, of the, one of the issues, yeah. which is that we normalize our own condition. I did not realize how pathologically competitive I was until someone measured me. How would I know? For me, it's normal. And it wasn't until I got those insights, and this is where psychometrics can actually be very helpful. Hmm. Um, it really made me look again at myself. Yeah. It made me understand that I have to motivate people who are very different than me. Not better, not worse, just different. That's a really good point. And, and for your final tip, what yep. would your top tip be for, for leaders who are, are listening now? What, what tip would you give them? I would always focus on awareness. Yeah. I think our ability to observe ourselves um, is a phenomenally powerful skill, not just in leadership, but in life in general. Mm -hmm. um, our ability thereafter to observe other people, not through our own biases and assumptions and estimations, it's that perspective building makes us much more complete, much more observant, and it makes us make far better behavioral choices yeah. in how we show up. Great, wise advice as always. David, thank you very much for having you on the it's series, and I look forward to further conversations on the podcast. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and, and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra with David Ringwood. And David, we're just going to go on and talk about your life mm. and your upbringing and some of the highs and some of the lows, you know, the darker moments as well as the good moments. Sure. Um, born where? Born in a very beautiful part of Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, the southeast. There's a place called County Wexford. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Uh, they call it the sunny southeast for reasons I've never quite understood because it rains a great deal. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> It is, a, it is a beautiful place to grow up, um, and particularly given the fact that I grew up in the uh, 60s, 70s, mm. uh, early 80s in, yeah. in that area, so life was different back then. Yeah, more relaxed and... Much more. Yeah. Much more, but we never knew it. No, no, it was just, it was just the norm, we just yeah. thought that's the way it was. And what about uh, parents? Were they, did, were they figureheads for you in, in a way about leadership and the way you grew up and behaved and your values? Very much so. Um, and only in a way that I think, I suspect like many people, you only realize in hindsight. Um, my father was not an educated man, uh, but he was a very intelligent man. He was a very cultured man. He was a very knowledgeable man and was respected for the role he played in uh, theater. Um, he was respected as a member of the religious community. Uh, subsequently, both my parents were recognized by the Pope. Um, really? Before my father died, yes. Yeah. Wow, that's a big step. It is, it is. Um, but, you know, you wonder where we get our characteristics from. Yeah. I think one of the characteristics that I got from both of them uh, is just tenacity, determination. I remember my father, who cut hair for a living. I yeah. told you he wasn't an educated man. Uh, Lee's father was in Bandoran on the on the west coast, ah. and he was hair for a living as well. Really, and he became mayor of Bandoran. So it's obviously a it's obviously a thing That's to amazing. do because they tend to be the people who know everything. Everybody comes and talks to them. Is that where you got your psychometrics from? Andrea? I don't know. I, no, I don't think so. In fact, I'd say I'd probably argue the opposite. Really? Yeah, because when you work for 
a man who is a figurehead of the community yeah. in the cultural and in the moral sense yeah, yeah. because he was very respected. Yes. Um, I actually found it harder to claim the limelight. Yes, yes, because he had it. He had it. It's very hard to compete with that, particularly when you don't have that repertoire of knowledge and contacts and you don't know everything. Yeah, yeah. The, the kind of where everyone he, he knew in the community. Uh, to some extent, I think that actually drove a certain level of introversion. Yes, and, and I, this this happened with Lee as well because yeah. the, because the, it was, in her case it wasn't her father; it was her grandfather, mm. Bill She Travers, who became the mayor of Bundoran, and her mother, who oh, was yeah. an actress, and and both were larger than life characters. So a bit like you, Lee, yeah. Lee was more introverted. Yes, and so but that probably made you because you, you're a deep thinking man. That I, whenever I ask you a question, there's a long pause, mm. and then something very profound comes out, and. And I suppose that might have shaped you in the way that you, you think and reflect and study and want to become an expert in your subject matter. I think so. And it, it, it kind of proves the fact that these things are always, aren't always a function of formal education. Uh, I mean, I, I drove my education to a very high level subsequent to that. What did you, what did you achieve then? Uh, well, I mean, I've done uh, uh, postgraduate and advanced research degrees in cognitive linguistics. Um, right. Yeah. Wow. And it's all self-funded. Uh, but these were never my expectations. Um, academia was not really in the DNA of the family up to that point. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that all of their So children, you're the most qualified probably in the family? Yes. And, yeah. and most pleased because I'm also the most competitive. So I, take, <laughs> I take a certain amount of pleasure in it for that reason alone. <laughs> but it does tell me one thing, which is in all likelihood, given where their children have gotten to, uh, what you were probably looking at were two people, i.e. my parents, who were uh, relatively in intelligent people, mm. um, doing jobs that were relatively menial yes. in a way that was probably not unusual given where Ireland was at that moment in history yeah. and in that socioeconomic yeah, yeah. cycle. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and I often see this with people who perhaps not gone and got university degrees, but they're very clever people. Um, Lee, my wife, ne never got herself a university degree, but she's extremely smart. And they just find other ways of, of using their intelligence mm. for, for the good of others, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and, and cognitive linguistics, mm. now, even the word sounds very complicated. Uh, my daughter did linguistics at Cambridge, but yeah. cognitive linguistics, is that the way we think in the language and a bit like, in the, 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 the kiss me quick cheap version is NLP, is that it? But the, this, is this much more sophisticated version of it? it it's, uh, I mean, NL, NLP is a good manifestation of cognitive linguistics. The reality is that um, people hold certain beliefs in their head. They represent that to others, uh, to a language. They tr transmit their thoughts and their feelings. That's a way of exchanging. Um, but also it represents their reality. It represents their perception. Hmm. And the language that people use reveals a, f a phenomenal amount so we observe three things. We observe what they say, which is actually the least interesting, yep. which might interest you. Yes. Uh, we observe what they imply. Uh, this is an area known as pragmatics. Yes. Uh, it's remarkably interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then we observe what they don't say, which can be remarkably revealing. The latter two, of course, are less cognizant. Yes. So people are revealing more than they realize, they just don't realize. Yes, brilliant. I like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like too. that. No, that's, that's uh, fascinating. So. We could talk more about that later. Mm. Um, back to family. How many in your family? Let me see. Born to a family with five kids. Yeah. 
so I was so a small family now then. Then uh, yeah, look at, yeah. When I look in, at the Travers in, family, there was just hundreds of them, like rabbits. They just yes, appearing everywhere. Yes, and my my sister married a guy who had twelve brothers. So I think we got off lightly. Yeah, but in in the highs and lows of life, you, you had some tough times as well. Yeah. You you had a twin brother. Yes, uh, but but he's not ended up so well, has it? Tell, tell us the story there. Um, he has mental health issues. Right. Um, and you know, sometimes as we grow into adults, um, issues become inescapable. They manifest in some way in our adult life. Mm. Uh, and I think given the fact that we live in a relatively conventional world, uh, we have to operate in, with a certain degree of functionality. Mm. I think when people are not capable of doing that, it becomes inescapable. Mm. And we try to either conform to that way and hide uh, uh, you know, some issues that are going on. Or those issues emerge sometimes in a way that's more unfortunate, and that was certainly the case with my brother. So, yeah, I, I, it's unlikely I'll see him again. Really? Yeah. So he's he's being looked after. Correct. Yeah. Wow. That's quite quite a tough one. What other moments in in your life sort of were tougher, darker times that have shaped the man you are now? The biggest single event was uh, I lost my sister in 2012 in a car accident. I'm very sorry. Um, it's just one of those, uh, I was going to say one of those things, I don't mean it in that sense of the term, it's a, just a regular a Sunday afternoon, everything is sailing by. Uh, she was going down to see my elderly parents uh, to take them out to lunch, she never showed up, they were a bit concerned and then the classic thing in Ireland is a, a, a police officer and a, and a priest show up at your house. Really? And as you see them coming, you know what's coming your way. God. Uh, and I can't imagine that. Um, so that was very, very difficult. She mm. had some sort of a medical incident. We don't think it was a stroke or a heart attack or something. I found her last email that she sent just before she got into the car, emailing a friend saying, I've got this strange pain in my back. I maybe see someone when I get back home this evening. Uh, she never made it. Wow. Yeah. God. And how do you recover from that? I suppose you don't. You don't. It stays don't. with you, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I can I, see it's it's touching you now. Yeah, it? Oh, it, it absolutely is. And the worst thing to do, you know, the worst thing I ever kind of had to witness was when we went to see the body. Oh, God. You know, and my, my parents went up and stroking her hair and telling her everything's going to be okay, and it's not. And it does bring a perspective on the world. It, it really makes you look around and begin to appreciate what you have. Mm. So we go back to the gratitude thing. Yeah, yeah. It brings a lot more respect for people. Uh, I think it's a shame that, I have to say, it took things like that sometimes in my world to make me confront some of the natural biases because that competitive part of me brings an oppositional mindset, the you versus me mentality mm. that makes us slightly hostile towards people. Mm. That serves itself. It does not serve me well. Yeah. It does not serve other people well. So any of us have to ask ourselves the question, even though I am motivationally pointed in certain directions mm. and I do by definition find them rewarding and personally fulfilling at some level as a consequence. Do these drivers serve themselves mm. or do they actually, when I think about what I want to achieve in my world, when I think about the type of person I want to be, and when I think about my values, uh, it makes you take a second look at 
why you do what you do yeah and then at what you do which is how you show up behaviorally mm. and I found particularly over the past few years because it took a few years for this to come out in the wash this was 2012 when this happened but I think particularly in the last two to three years I'm finding a level of emotional responsibility mm. towards people mm. I always had a responsibility to make things happen which is someone has got to step up and assume command Mm -hmm. uh, my father was in the uh, reserve military for 39 years, by the way, so oh, right. uh, you might identify with some of the old habits that <sighs> die hard, do they not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that command and control kind of posture was always there. And I think and that perhaps that's why you began your leadership style, thinking that was the way I, to do I it. I think inevitably, because that was very much how he showed up, both as a father and as a leader in the community. Yeah. He, he was uh, uh, respected but feared yeah. in, in many senses. Yeah. Um, but I could never go back to that now. I think having mm -hmm. witnessed things like that, and this isn't like reading a book or watching a weepy movie. Yeah. This is as real as it gets. This is as gritty and as tangible, and you do not unlearn that. So I find myself taking more pleasure now in just being supportive, in just being decent to people. Um, and if I would emphasize one thing about this, that I never saw before and in fact it kind of proves its own point uh, this is about perspective I never really saw it from the other person's point of view I only had an intellectual understanding of the fact that people need support they need compassion I got that it's not that I didn't understand it and it is interesting you say this I was listening again to one of my favorite uh, speakers Sir Ken Robinson Ooh. and he did a lot of an education and, and he as a as a a very knowledgeable academic man he said that you know some people get too much in their head yeah. and slightly to one side as he <laughs> described it. and he said that that for some academics that he's worked with the body is just a transportation for the head and he yeah. said if you want a if you want a hilarious example of this just go to the uh, in the old days that the disco on mm. a saturday night at the academics reunion and they're all writhing out of time with the music because they're not in control of their bodies and but but I've experienced you that, you know, very cerebral, uh, incredibly insightful with a huge volume of data that you can draw on about leadership and people. And you make sense of psychometrics in a way that I thought I understood them and I could explain it to a client. Mm. But you just add a richness and a dimension to it. haven't seen with any other psychometrician, which is why I wanted you on this uh, Inspiring Leadership podcast series. But I'm also hearing that you're getting in tune even more so after the tragedy, not just after the tragedy of your sister's death, mm. but other things, with how you feel and how others feel. And I, and I felt sometimes you might have steered away from the feelings and emotions mm. and just explained academically things mm. and, and stayed almost detached as watching a third party explaining something. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting more of the whole of you now. To some extent, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, when I realize, in hindsight, uh, that I spent a great deal of my adult life suppressing emotion mm. uh, or denying emotion uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they were more dissonant or painful and, yeah. and no one really wants to live with that as an active part of their world, so they store it away somewhere. Or where the role model is one which suggests that emotions represent weakness. Yes. Uh, it was a very almost misogynistic mm. view of the world that my father had. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's an interesting point of view as well. 
but it does mean that it it almost becomes inevitable that we we put emotions in a certain place we categorize them as a certain thing and mm. it's not always in the affirmative sense as we get older we begin to realize how important emotions are yeah we begin to realize that suppressing emotions they don't go away arguably they get bigger because we're bottling them up yeah uh, and they need a place to go um, there are some emotions I've learned to try to not control me yeah. uh, the two of them particularly being fear and anger because I find that they self-sustain anger makes me hostile mm. um, and therefore oppositional mm -hmm. <clears throat> fear makes me fearful and uh, that trepidation mm. makes me avoidant um, and that almost self-sustains yeah and I'm not doing that anymore I spent too much of my adult life doing that I'm not willing to, to live that and I think there are choices we can make about that yeah wow uh, there's so much so many different directions we could go at the moment but I I'm particularly interested in your experience of um, teams and individuals yeah. when you're when you're working with them and you're doing the analysis um, as you've been doing at MRG mm. and, and you look at one of the tools which is my favorite as you know because I use it so often the the management research group IDI the individual directions inventory what you know what motivates and makes people do things they do time and again you've mentioned values values yes. being very important it yep. is in MRG you so it's the glue that holds a whole load of people with different approaches and different mm. perspectives together that common values when you don't have it then that's when you can get Absolutely. a toxic mistrustful team um, but uh, you know what would you share from the insights that you get on a tool like individual directions inventory about what drives and motivates people and how it helps people observe and understand themselves so they can better lead others what's what would be some insights you've got the IDI the individual directions inventory so it's looking at 17 different characteristics and these characteristics are independent of each other so you get a lot of finesse when you look at combinations and there's a few things that people begin to realize um, as they do so the way I get true to them first is I think it's partly experience I think it's partly expertise uh, I think it's partly life experience um, but I'm able to describe what it feels like to live in that skin of theirs mm. in a way they've never been able to put words to or in a way that no one else has ever been able to observe yeah even people who know them very well for many many years Bear in mind, Jonathan, the only thing we can observe about other people are their behaviors. I think I have, to some extent, a little bit of an advantage in because we can either measure observationally, but we can also measure psychometrically why people do what they do, the motivational characteristics. Mm. The motivational characteristics are remarkably powerful because it really gets to the truth of the individual, which is really what MRG is about. Mm. it gets to the uniqueness of the individual mm. it adopts a descriptive approach and to your question about the teamwork this is one of the starting points which is to take a descriptive non-evaluative view of ourselves and therefore of others for example what motivates me Jonathan I can assure you is not the same as what motivates you mm. that doesn't make me better than you it doesn't make me worse than you it makes me different than you and the more I understand myself I begin to then more completely and more fully and more objectively 
get a grasp on what it might feel like to live in the skin of someone else who motivationally is different than me. Mm. And once you know that about your colleagues, again, you can't unlearn that. Mm. It now brings a sense of responsibility to develop that awareness and to make calibrated behavioral choices. And those choices don't actually need then to line up with our drivers. I'm, to your point earlier, uh, I'm not the most empathetic person in the world. I'm the more intellectual. Mm. Uh, that's not an IQ measure. It's just I have a, an enjoyment of analysis. That doesn't yeah. mean I'm good at it. Oh, you love it. I, I really do. I think it's really rich and complex and that uh, I like depth. Uh, the risk is with that, I underestimate other people's need for emotional support. Yeah. Um, it makes that authentic empathetic behavior a little bit harder for me to access for mm. other people who would just come naturally yeah but if i know that someone in my team needs it i won't enjoy it for its own sake but if i know it is in service of one of my yeah. teams and it makes me a better citizen and it makes me a better colleague and it makes them feel good i've always said there's a big difference between understanding people and making them feel understood Yes. the latter being significantly more powerful and what I want to be and when I look at teams what I, I counsel them to want to be is the, the the boss or the colleague who seems to know when I need a bit of support yeah they seem to know when I'm not as clear as I would like to be they seem to know when to leave me the heck alone yeah that's when people feel understood and when people feel understood, they feel appreciated. They mm. feel respected. It mitigates against misconception and misunderstanding. I mean, you can't buy things like that. Yeah. And that's where mutual trust and appreciation and respect comes from. Because you're learning things about each other as a team that you wouldn't otherwise get to know. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I always have appreciated in the feedback sessions you've done with me uh, on people I've been wanting to give feedback to or coach or even you've done it with Lee and myself and mm. understanding each other which was fascinating Indeed. Um, it is the way you can look at someone's report uh, um, for about five ten minutes and then you, you remember it you have almost a photographic memory don't you of, or some way of it's, you know the kind of problem and then you can have a conversation with someone without their report in front of you but you mm. just sort of know them how have you learned that skill or was it always there it was always there you, you'll be pleased to know it's not correlated with iq <laughs> so it's not about being smart or dumb uh it just is a thing uh it's a ditic memory uh it's basically i can't unlearn i just remember everything um it must be hell in that head of yours it must be full of crammed with so much stuff going it, on it gets a bit noisy in here uh, it also can, and I have to be careful about this in all seriousness because I think responsibility comes with, with this as well, is it can be a bit disconcerting for people. It can be a little bit intimidating. Yeah. Uh, because I remember everything. Yeah. Uh, I will remember the scores that they had. I will listen to the cognitive verbs that they use. I will listen to the sensory or emotional verbs that they use. Mm. I will think about relative to certain scales like the interpreting scale. Um, I remember sentence numbers that they, you know, so... I have to be because I remember when we went through one. You remembered one from years ago. Oh yeah, because I've done it about three or four times, and, and you you sort of clocked all the different versions of it, um, and that's that's a, a really great skill. 
No, I really admire you in that. And then let's have a let's have a think about you know some, some of the highlights of your career, some of the the, the jobs you enjoyed the most, and, and what you learnt about leadership from those kind of situations. Tell us about a couple of that. I'm going to go back to that brief story about uh, working in recruitment, and I think it was that because it was the time when it it aligned most with my values, it aligned most with my drivers, and then the behaviours became easy. Yeah. Because I found a home. Uh, I found. This is your, almost like your calling, your vocation. It, 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 it was, was just a, a good match, good alignment. You know, the funny thing was, if you look at it on paper. People thought I was nuts because I was working with JP Morgan, a yeah. very fine organization, and to this day, uh, I was working in highly complex areas of structured derivatives, which was, again, interesting intellectually, which appealed to that part of me. And yet, how come you could work for one of the finest AAA organizations in the world in investment banking? How come you could be paid a great deal of money as a young person uh, with a trajectory that probably was not going anywhere bad? You were recruiting for them? No, I worked for them. Oh, you worked for them? Yeah. Wow. I started my career as an investment banker. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. How interesting. Yeah. I was one of the nerds. I could could see you doing that. Yeah. With the long fellow quants and people like that. Absolutely. With their heads up there and slight to the left. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And and I don't know what the collective noun for nerds is, but we were that that group. That makes sense. Right. so why didn't it work? Why did I go into work every day feeling there's something wrong here? And it took me a while to realize it. In fact, it took me several years to realize it is because the values were not the same. Mm. And when the values are not the same, it means that you have to then conform to sets of expectations or ways of behaving that really don't sit well. Yeah. And just staying with that for a moment, it's quite interesting. I've generally enjoyed much of what I did. But I think for 20 years I was a reasonable army officer, I had a sort of good track record, but there were times, I learned a lot from it, but there were times when I was doing things which I found a bit dull, Mm. you know, and you know, guard duties and all this kind of stuff and routine and certain procedures and stuff. And that didn't sit easily with my values, which you know me well. but I, I, certain things drove me and made me do it, and other things were in conflict with it. Mm. And I just thought, this is so to be doing this kind of work, you know, interviewing fascinating people like you and others, and helping people be better leaders and passing on the knowledge mm. of what others have accumulated. That, this is just a joy. This doesn't feel like work at all. Exactly. And and that's what you found when you were in recruitment. You were just it was a, a really good match. Yes. If if you're doing things which don't line up you're going to have to find energy every single day to do things which are intellectually very capable of. It's not the issue. The issue is, are you getting anything out of it? Are you getting a sense of reward of energy? Um, And it impacts a few things. It impacts authenticity. You're trying to be someone you're not, at least to a degree. Uh, It certainly impacts sustainability. Mm. How long can we keep this up before it comes out in the wash? Yeah. And that's when... It's sort of imposter syndrome, really. It, 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 it is in the worst possible sense because sooner or later you're delaying the inevitable. Yeah. Sooner or later this is not going to come to a happy pass. And I think the sooner we can recognize and understand that, but of course we can only recognize that if we understand our drivers to begin with, yeah. which is where these independent measures can be really helpful. In fact, a lot of the feedback I get 
uh, particularly the work I do at IMD. Uh, mm. I've been working there for, for many, many years now. In Switzerland, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is, is this is just a remarkably powerful and insightful, and by the way, where were you 20 years ago? Yeah. So you really have found, uh, and, and, and uh, time and again, people, and you're very kindly doing some for, for our charity tomorrow, the mm. Tomorrow Leadership Trust, you're helping the, the girls who are mentoring and coaching young girls who've been abused and been through modern day slavery and things like that mm. to, to, um, to really make use of psychometrics yep. and tools. Uh, and, and you are in your element, it's, it's no doubt about it. Mm. So as we come towards the end of our time, David, yep. what, what would you leave us with as a couple of sort of top tips about understanding people, you know, the value making use of psychometrics, how, how not to use them? Um, you know, some, some tips, practical tips for people who are good leaders, want to be better, and they also want to make use of why psychometrics. You know, some people poo-poo them. They go, mm. oh, "This is this is rubbish." You know, this is, mm. what, what what would you what would be your final thoughts? I I think they have a place in the world, but only that. I think they are to some extent a means to an end. Um, look, you can use psychometrics, as we say, we measure psychometrically or we measure observationally, um, and I think there are certain areas where psychometrics add more value. Yep. Um, I think particularly when it comes to aspects of individual which are not necessarily observable. Yeah. You can observe someone's personality because it will show up in the way that they behave. Yeah. Uh, you can observe someone's behavior, we can measure that in the 360. It's only capturing things that you are witnessing in any event, it's just helpful feedback for them. But there's something much deeper, there's something much more profound and this goes very deep and it goes very far back to our formative years, the first 10 to 12. And the reality is because it goes so deep and because it goes so far back, we normalize our own condition mm. and we normalize it to the extent that we don't even see it anymore. Mm. And how on earth can any of us claim to be unbiased or objective or more complete in our observations of ourselves when you consider factors such as this? Yeah. It's not about being smart or dumb. It just, if you have a brain, you have a bias. Mm. And then how can any of us claim to be lucid and complete in our observations of other people other than to our own natural biases and assumptions? We walk in the room with estimations and assumptions and expectations and we don't even know we're doing yeah, it. Yeah, so true, so true. David, brilliant. We could chat about this all day long. Um, thank you very much indeed for, for sharing your wisdom and insight and I'm sure people listening here would like to tap into your knowledge and experience and will reach out to you. But I've uh, valued and continue to value the ability you have to understand people and teams and uh, keep doing some great work. Thank it's you very much thank for you having me here. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. 
And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.